the end of another busy day. You just saw 20, 30 patients, maybe more. Instead of heading home for dinner with your spouse or playing with your kids, you now begin your night job, charting. Charting is critical for patient care, billing, and medical legal liability, but it steals our focus from our patients, eats away at our time with our families, and keeps us up at night. The burden of always having another chart to complete drains all of us. Freed listens, prepares your notes, and writes patient instructions for you. Charting is done before your patient walks out of the room. Wait, because it gets better. Freed learns your style over time. It's AI, just like a human scribe would, except it will never quit on you. Freed is loved by 3,000 plus clinicians from every specialty. It's HIPAA compliant, takes 30 seconds to learn, and costs only $99 a month. You can try Freed for free right now by going to freed.ai, F-R-E-E-D.ai. Listeners of the Physician's Guide to Doctoring can use the code PGD50 for $50 off the first month. If you've ever suffered from overwhelm, and I know you have, this is the episode for you. As physicians, we swim in it, but why? What if we don't have to? Find out more. Stay tuned. Hey, this is Brad Block, host of The Physician's Guide to Doctoring. This is a personal and professional development podcast for physicians where we have experts on the show that try to teach us everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. On today's episode, we have Dr. Megan Mello. She is a board, she's board certified in family medicine and obesity medicine and currently working at the Finney Primary Care and Wellness in Seattle. She's a certified life coach with a life coach. She likes continuing education. So wait till you hear this. Certified life coach with the Life Coach School, certified Daring Way facilitator based on the work of Brene Brown, and a Ballant instructor based on the teaching of psychoanalyst Michael Ballant, and the host of the Ending Physician Overwhelm podcast. Now, I think she's a good person to talk to about overwhelm considering how much schooling she's decided to tack onto her already medical training. So welcome to the show, Dr. Megan Mello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk about this topic. And actually, that whole list of things is something that contributes. And I think we ought to talk about it. (laughs) We do this, you know, sometimes it's outside forces. But as we were talking about before the show, sometimes we do this to ourselves. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the origin of ending physician overwhelm. I have always been someone who wanted to do a lot of different things. It's how I ended up in family medicine, right? Because I get to do birth to death and doing deliveries for much of my career as well. Throughout, I think I experienced burnout off and on since I was a teenager, to be quite honestly, because, you know, we're such high achievers, we're driven. The farther along we go, the more opportunities come to us. And the more opportunities come to us, we're flattered to be invited to participate or, you know, we feel rewarded in some way, like we've got a degree, we've got this, we've got this. And as we go along that pathway, we don't realize that there are more things in front of us, more good opportunities in front of us than any one person could ever successfully complete, ever. Because we have grown up in a soup where, you know, as physicians, like we had to compete and compete and compete at a lot of different levels to get where we are. We just see more opportunities to do more stuff. It's great, great. Now I can prove myself over here, over here, over here. And that's how you end up with a whole lot of certifications behind you, often with a sense of insufficiency, you know, kind of coming along behind it. And then guess what? You get overwhelmed. (laughs) 
I started the podcast it's about a, about a year and a half ago now as I started working as a coach really as an opportunity to kind of dig into these issues more often the Folks that I coach are mostly women physicians who are struggling with perfectionism, people-pleasing, lack of boundaries, and how that intersects with burnout. And the system is incredibly broken in all the ways that we can, you know, throw stones at. In part, the system also trains us to take over the responsibility of sort of cracking the whip on our own backs. And in doing so, we keep ourselves incredibly busy and often find ourselves drowning in it. For myself, I find that it's cyclical, right? Like I'll realize that I'm overwhelmed. I'll scale back on some of my responsibilities and then, you know, end up, as you said, we see all these possibilities in front of us. And so then I start adding to that again until I'm overwhelmed again. At no point am I underwhelmed. I just alternate between like whelmed and overwhelmed. Like I'm either like doing the right amount of stuff but then like, you know, maybe there's a little wiggle room in there. Maybe if I do just a little bit more, maybe, you know, and then I add on to that and now I'm overwhelmed again. And so it's never back and forth. Although you did look into this before the show and the term whelm you determined was an archaic form of ultimately what overwhelm is. So it's like you're submerged in something and that's what overwhelm is. You're like drowning in, in your work. And so overwhelm ultimately is redundant, but you know, we're not here to change the English language. We're here to educate the physician. Sadly, no, although I was an English major, so we can dive into a lot of things like that, but that's not really what the point of this podcast is. But I do want to point out something that yeah, you and I are, I would say, sounds like of a similar, cut from a similar cloth of like cyclical overwhelm, right? Because I reached out to you a few months ago, or maybe, I don't know, I don't reached out to you a while ago and I said, let's have a podcast, right? And you said, oh, yes, but it's got to be a while, right? Because I've just kind of signed up for a little bit too much. And I'm in that phase now where I got a lot of energy and I'm like, I need to go and get more people on my podcast and be on more people's podcasts. And so I signed up for a whole bunch and now I'm on nonstop Zoom calls or similar recording. I recognize in myself now, thankfully with kindness and self-compassion, hey, you know what? You've got a little too much going on right now. It's time to dial it down. Right. Because no one taps us on the shoulder and says, hey, do you know, like you should really take a break. Or if they do say that, we certainly don't listen a lot of the time. Well, I think the feedback that I got was when I was recording yet another podcast episode, my wife was like, really? Again? Because my day is I wake up with the kids. I go to work. I get home. The kids put the kids to bed, go downstairs, record a podcast. And so that was the window where we hang out. My wife and I hang out. We talk, we talk about the day we play, right? But now I'm in the basement again and again and again and again. And so then she was the one that tapped on my shoulder and she didn't say, it wasn't like, it was more just like, you know, I was looking forward to seeing you, but it's like disappointing that you're in the basement again. It wasn't like, I think you're doing too much, but you know, that clearly it's taken a toll. So it's time to scale back on this. And I think, as you said, with kindness, like, it's not like, oh, I'm not good enough or I'm not doing enough. I think it's more like, yeah, no, no, enough. You messed this up again. Yeah, and I think that's so true. And, um, you know, I think a lot about us creating sort of white space for ourselves in our days, in our calendars. I literally have times on my calendar where it says, you know, spend time with my husband or this is my time. The challenge there is actually following through because so often we are very good at responding to responsibilities where it relies on somebody else. I wasn't going to not show up for today. You're expecting me, you and you allowed me to come on your show, right? Like that would be horrible. 
but I might bail on something that's just for me with my husband who I've got a long-standing relationship. Yeah, he's used to me not being around, right? We do that to ourselves a lot. And again, let's let's not look at ourselves and beat ourselves up. There's very valid reasons why we've done that for a long time, right? We're used to taking medical care of people. We're used to having lives in our hands. We're used to doing, you know, a lot of intensive work. And we've come to believe that sometimes our urgencies are medically important, even though a lot of the time these things, not at all, right? You, nothing bad would happen if you and I weren't here talking. Right. I do want to, though, give you permission, should something like this happen again, to like reach out to a fellow podcaster and be like, listen, I mean, that happens. That happens all the time. And I don't sweat it. In fact, in my life, it would be like, it would be a relief. Not that I wasn't looking forward to talking to you. But then like, suddenly I get this little present of, I get to actually hang out with my wife. And, and what I've found is that it's like insidious right? The overwhelm kind of sneaks up on you, right? Like it's like suddenly you're like taking on a little more, a little more, a little more. And then suddenly you're like at or, a, you know, above capacity. And it's like, any ideas on why that ends up sneaking up like that? I think a lot of these tendencies really come out of our training. You know, as medical students and residents, we really couldn't say no, you know, outside of really extreme circumstances, right? Like if I have a kidney stone or I don't know, I was going into labor or something, that would be a time that I, you know, I'd bow out and say, okay, you know, I literally need to leave now. But a lot of the time we didn't have that ability. You know, we had maybe some duty hours, but even then, if your program wasn't following the duty hours, there wasn't a whole lot of power that you had to leverage. So we train in this environment where we are dependent on other people telling us what to do, where to be, what to say. And always with this mindset, do it better, do it harder. You know, you need these skills. You know, you have to have perfect skills, knowledge, execution, taking care of patients, right? When it comes to us standing on our own as attendings, regardless of what else we're doing in life, it's very easy to keep sort of task mastering ourselves because we have learned how to do it for ourselves, right? By the time you're a third year resident, right? You don't need other people telling you what to do. You're suddenly the one who's telling other people what to do. But you have along the way picked up a very strong sense of all the things that you need to keep yourself in line doing, right? And all the achievements that you need to continue to achieve and perform. And that just keeps going for a lot of us, right? No one ever tells us, you know, you could relax a little bit. You could coast. You could just be a doctor. You don't have to also run this committee. You don't have to also do this and this thing. People, of course, want us to do that stuff all the time, often unpaid or uncompensated in other ways. And we just tend to pile it on and think, yeah, I can do more. I can do more. I'm not working as hard as so-and-so over there. I'm not an ENT, right? I don't do surgery. I, I should be able to work harder than this. I feel like it's almost like parents and kids. Like, like my parents' voices are in my head. It's funny when I realize it when it's happening, but it's that's what it is. And I'm hoping to put my voice in my children's heads, right? Give them a moral compass, a sense of responsibility, right? But even some of the, you know, negative stuff is unfortunately going to end, end up in their heads. And I feel like that happens in our training too. Like I've got my program director and my chairperson still in my head, like this need to live up to their expectation, Right. Like the gold standard was like, how many chairmen can graduate chair, 
people can graduate from our department. That's like the gold state. Well, I'm never going to be a chairperson, but is there other stuff that I can do to win their approval? It's like that voice is still in my head. 12 years, 12 and a half years out from residency, it's still there. And it's often the toughest voice. Like you've often selected the toughest voice, right? The person that you're competing the hardest to win the approval of has that internal voice. It's not anyone who is, you know, more kind and gentle on you, right? Because you really wanted to please that person who, you know, was the impossible one. Right. You're the ones who are not in your head are the ones that were the ones who are kinder to you. And yes. Right. And perhaps more balanced themselves. How do we get that out of our heads? This is turning into a therapy session for me. Thank you. How do we get this, uh, these voices out of my head? Yeah. I mean, I think we have to start with awareness, right? We have to really be aware when we are in these patterns, right? We're working too hard or we're just doing the wrong work, right? We're not delegating. We're not making sure that the team is effective. And that's really challenging, of course, right now, because so many places, you know, are down on staff. It's been a whole mess, right? During the pandemic, but many of us are not used to really delegating or really trusting other people. We have to start doing some of that But we also have to sort of see ourselves, you know, either in the moment where we are overwhelmed or reflecting on it afterwards, take that time to say, gosh, I was really feeling a lot of feelings right then. What was going on? Like, what were actually the thoughts going through my head? Like, what were the actual sentences in my brain, you know, teasing out, oh, you know, I can hear the voice of Dr. So-and-so in my head telling me, you're never going to get this thing right. Or you need to practice this more. Or you shouldn't be whining about this. Right? If I can start to connect my emotions with some of those sentences in my head, right? And start to realize, like, who is that scary voice in my head? Oh, it turns out I'm carrying around Dr. So-and-so in my head. Okay. If I get some understanding of that, I can often start to do that more in the moment. Right? So that when I'm feeling overwhelmed... I can check in and say, what's going on? Oh, I'm telling myself that, you know, I'm supposed to get caught up, but I'm also supposed to spend more time with the people, even though I'm already running late, I have to take care of all the things, but here's Mrs. So-and-so and she's got her list of 17 items. Overwhelm. If I pause, if I notice, okay, what I'm choosing to think instead is that this is a really busy day and I need to get through it. I want to take good care of people, but I'm not going to overextend taking emotion out of it and applying logic and reason. Well, it's not taking the emotion. It's actually choosing to notice and name the emotion because we've been taught to push. That's the problem. Like we've been taught to push the feelings down, right? Like ignore the fact that I'm feeling frustrated, annoyed, you know, try and maintain this professional demeanor at all times. We're often so checked out from our emotions, but we're swimming in them regardless and they're affecting our actions, right? Like we're so slowed down because we're anxious and overwhelmed and frustrated and resentful. If we are learning how to notice like, oh, I'm feeling frustrated or angry right now. What's going on? Oh, it's because this thing is happening. Okay. Then I can get some control back. And even just that simple act of naming the emotion, if you don't do anything else, has some effect in terms of tuning things down. This sounds exactly like the podcast that I listen to about parenting. Like I need to start saying to my kids, wow, it sounds like we're having some big feelings right now. Let's name those feelings. Like that's what you just said to me that that I should be doing. So clearly there's some work that I need to do in addition in order to be able to help my kids more. 
I don't know how that goes with your kids. That doesn't go so well with my kids when they're in their big feelings. But it is a skill. It is a skill that we can learn, right? Maybe if we're annoying enough with them about it and we do it in ourselves, maybe later they'll start to model it. That voice will be in their head. What emotion am I feeling right now? (laughs) You had mentioned earlier that one of the things that you coach on is you coach women physicians on being people pleasers and perfectionists, right? Like when we're dealing with our patients, like we don't want, we want to please them. I mean, certainly we don't want to appease their every whim. Sometimes what I have to say is this is not an a la carte menu where you get to choose. Like, I'm not just going to do the surgery because you want the surgery done. Like it needs to be the right thing to do. Right. So there needs to be a limit on that people pleasing. But at the same time, like you want to be, you want them to like you because if they do like you, they're more likely to listen to you. They're more likely to follow through. They're more likely to refer their friends. They're more likely to want to see you again. So we do want to be people pleasers in that respect. And we also do want to be perfectionists because we want to get the medicine right. Like we don't want to hurt anyone. We want to make sure that we don't miss anything. So we kind of have to be people pleasers. We have to be perfectionists because the opposite is not anything we want a part of. But yet you're saying we need to fight against the desire to be a people pleaser and a perfectionist? Here's where we get into the weeds a little bit, right? Because you're absolutely right. Like we want to have people like and respect us and trust us, right? That is important in the medical relationship. What we don't want to do is do anything to win their favor because that is not appropriate. So I'll give you an example of where this comes up. I would say to some extent, right, some of the difficulty with the overuse of opiates and benzodiazepines, right, has to do with patients being very upset when they don't get them. And there being this desire and this tension in medical care for us to be doing this customer service aspect. And unfortunately, right, sometimes that ends up looking like inappropriate prescriptions, right? And You know, I think we can all recognize the tension in those kinds of experiences. Even an antibiotic. Sure, right? Sinusitis, right? (laughs) Right. If I have a relationship, right, with a patient, I can very easily talk them out of an antibiotic. I can very clearly say, this is not going to help you. That's not what we're going to do. We're going to do this thing instead, right? It's much quicker and simpler with the patient who thinks they they just need another Z-pack for me to say, oh, sure, you know, that sounds okay, and give it to them. And if there's this extra sort of customer service, you know, like we have to take care of our patients, right? That pressure is there. And I think especially in a lot of these, you know, these kind of dock in the box sort of pop up, you know, sort of, and a lot of the new online options as well. I see a lot of antibiotics. I see a lot of prednisone, you know, a lot of medications that given what the patient has told me, I'm like, oh, I wouldn't be prescribing that. I wouldn't have given you that. When it is an a la carte menu and you just give them something, it's a shorter right. visit. You're able to move on to the next right. patient. And the right. patient satisfaction scores tend to be higher. Get more imaging. Satisfaction goes up. Yeah. They tend to be higher, but at what cost? Oh, no. I'm just saying this is the reality <laughs> that we're living in. So there's a lot of those things. But but what I see also is, you know, physicians in particular wanting to be the nice one, wanting to be the easy one to talk to, or having develop this persona where they know that they're that person in the clinic, right? They know that they're the person that the nurses will come to with their questions because they are more approachable because they won't yell or be rude, you know, sort of agreeing to take that on, even when it's not their patient. Yeah, sure. I'll answer questions. Sure. You can interrupt me anytime. And meanwhile, 
the number of those interruptions just mounts, right? Or not wanting to be the difficult one to work with, right? And so not asking the medical assistant to take on, you know, their appropriate task. There's a lot of that goes on and it just contributes to this environment where the physicians are often doing so much extra work. They're doing that with the patients. They're doing that with the staff. It comes from a good place, right? It comes from a kind-hearted place. We want to be good team members. We want to be a part of the team. They're integral part of the teams. We want to help them do their jobs. And there's this extra piece. If you're socialized as a woman or, you know, as a minority, there's often this extra layer of team playerness, you know, that kind of comes with that, where if you're not smiling, if you're not contributing to the potluck, you know, if you're not volunteering and saying yes to the committee that you've been invited to join, well, you're not a team player. We're still wrestling with those things. So that's kind of the people-pleasing side, the perfectionist side. There's a difference between perfectionism and healthy striving and excellence, right? So perfectionism, when we really drill down into it, is about shame avoidance. If I look perfect, act perfect, you know, say all the right things, then no one needs to know that I have no idea what I'm doing inside. Then I will be immune to criticism, And that can happen, of course, socially, but it also, we carry this in with, you know, with medical outcomes because we're trained to believe that bad outcomes that happen must be our fault, right? Our lack of knowledge, skills, expertise, something, you know, resulted in the bad outcomes when most of the time the bad outcomes that happen are outside of our control. But if we're sitting here believing, well, this didn't get better or, you know, this happened to this body, right? This this cancer advanced because I didn't do enough then we're going to get tighter and tighter into this perfectionism bent. And it's really quite toxic as opposed to wanting to provide high quality care, right? But understanding that high quality care has its limits, right? We haven't fixed all the things. So what you're saying is the people pleaser is, you know, you do want patients to like you. You do want the staff to like you, but you have to be okay setting boundaries. It's not about getting them to like you. It's about doing what's appropriate. I mean, people pleasing at the cost of medical care and same thing with, or similar perfectionism. What you're saying is perfect, striving for perfect medical care is okay. Striving for perfect outcomes, not okay. Yeah. If there is such a thing as perfect medical care, I think we could know. No, but like striving, right? Striving to do what is medically appropriate. I want to do the right thing. Exactly. I want to, you know, if I don't know the answer to something, I'm going to get help, right? I'm going to refer appropriately. I'm going to do the right surgery. You know, I'm going to work as hard as I can to have the appropriate level of, you know, skill, expertise, knowledge, but I'm not going to tie all of that to this sense of I should never be criticized. If I am being criticized is because I'm inadequate, you know, and not be willing to disappoint some people's expectations. With the people pleasing too in the medical care, you know, there's certainly that part of it related to like prescriptions and and sort of doing everything for the patient. But there's also just this element of there is simply not enough time in anyone's day to do all those things. There was a study that came out in medical economics in August of 2022 that said that for a primary care physician, they needed 26.7 hours per 24-hour day to be able to complete all the tasks needed for a primary care physician panel, right? So that includes acute care, chronic care, vaccines, preventative care, all the things, 26.7 hours out of a 24-hour day. If you have a high-functioning team operating with that primary care provider, it dropped down to something like 9.2 hours a day. We often don't have those high-functioning medical teams, so we're often more you know, close to that 26.7 hours. Or 
you did, and then one of them left on maternity, or one of them left on paternity, or one of them moved and finding a new job, one of them got promoted, so now you're training someone, so it's not a perfect team, yeah. So the moment that the one wheel comes off the bus, then you're done, yeah. And we're keeping our teams so tight, right, that we don't have we don't have the bandwidth to absorb, you know, for those, you know, there, there are lots of FMLA leaves that are totally appropriate. There are some that are probably inappropriate within our medical teams. It's as though we don't expect that at all. We just expect, nope, you know, if I've got one medical assistant and one doctor, that's always going to work. But, you know, sometimes we're going to get sick. Sometimes we're going to go on vacation and we're going to, you know, we need to have some flexibility. We need some extra bodies in order to maintain that pairing, even if it's not the exact same people. We're maintaining at whelm. And then if anything happens, we're immediately at overwhelm. Right. <laughs> We've been whelmed. You know, before we were talking about that overwhelm cycle, right? Where you're, you know, you realize you're there, you shed some responsibilities, you fill that space back up, you're back to overwhelm. So that's the overwhelm cycle, right? What about the stress cycle? What is the stress cycle? So the stress cycle um, comes from this wonderful book uh, entitled uh, Burnout. Uh, I've got it right here, actually. The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle, uh, written by twin sisters, uh, Emily and Emilia Nagoski. And they talk about this idea of animals needing to complete a stress cycle. And it's part of our mammalian wiring, where if an animal is running away from a predator and gets to a safe space they do something right after to sort of relieve that tension. So for example, you know, ran away from the lion, got to a safe space, animals will, will shake. They'll do something to actually relieve the tension. They talk about it in humans that there are certain things that we can do that help to sort of complete that cortisol, epinephrine, you know, kind of stress response, right? And we don't do that. We spend a lot of our time, you know, running around just chronic hyperstress mode. And we don't often take the time to do anything to relieve that. We don't do that in the moment. We don't do that at the end of the day. So like binge watching, does that count as like a shake or a little Instagram scrolling? Yeah, we might have a debrief after a code, but do we actually take care of the stress response in our body? No. So what they talk about is things like this one sounds really simple, but making eye contact with somebody. So imagine if you, you know, were humans running away from a predator, right? You get into, you get into the house or the cave or whatever, you close the door, right? You're now safe. You are looking at, you know, your neighbor who has let you in. You are hugging them. You are taking deep, slow breaths. You might do a shaking practice, right? To kind of relieve that tension. So these are different kinds of physical things that you might do, to come down from that stressful experience. I've been teaching a lot of my clients something that I picked up from a friend who, you know, after a difficult encounter with a patient, she will shake and sort of flick her hands as though she's flicking water off of them aggressively and doing that for about 30 seconds, you know, so it's not just a kind of a very quick motion, but really engaging with something or deep, slow breathing for 30 seconds to a minute to really kind of calm your nervous system back down before you go on to the next thing. These simple somatic practices are something that most of us didn't learn. You know, we were taught to suppress our emotions, suppress our physical responses, right? You know, stay very focused and then move on, right? You finish this code, you might debrief, but then you're on to go finish rounds. 
taking the time to do these simple things, right? Take care of our bodies really helps to prevent us from having all these stuck emotions, you know, having physical manifestations, you know, later where we have all these backaches, migraines, you know, we get really sick stuff happens to us and we wonder why. And it's like, well, it's because we're just locking all this stuff up in our bodies. Yeah. So I guess yelling, probably not going to be acceptable in office hours, right? Yelling is probably not. <laughs> like to just a big that scream <laughs> sounds like it would be appropriate in that, in what you're describing. Like maybe not socially accept. Those sounds like some good ones. Yeah. Yelling into a pillow. I don't know. I think they do mention that. But that, no, that makes total sense. That makes total sense. You know, I feel like sometimes when these things are brought up, they sound so woo, right? I am anti-woo, right? This is, but this makes sense. This makes physiologic sense. And these stress responses are, you know, developed, our sympathetic nervous system developed to avoid danger, being chased by bears or lions or swimming away from another you know, a shark. And when we're done, right, if this is what other mammals do, then it's probably in us to do it and suppressing it is going to have some effects. So that probably there's a cortisol letdown there. And we were never designed. Yeah, we were never designed to thrive running away from bears 24 hours a day, right? Like we were designed to be able to mount that kind of a physiologic response, right? To be able to have the you know, pupils dilate, we can bring more oxygen into our lungs, right? And, you know, more blood into our muscles to be able to run, but not all day, all the time. And yet that's how most of us are living our lives. And yet you mentioned, you know, in Netflix and binge watching, right? Like we might come home and crash on the couch. We might grab ice cream, we might grab beer or wine. You know, we might do these things in the name of like calming ourselves down, but a lot of it's just numbing and doesn't really make us feel better. It just kind of numbs, maybe gives us a little dopamine. It's not really self-care. It's not really taking good care of ourselves. All right. Well, if we want to learn more on how to take good care of ourselves, where do we find you online? Yeah. So you'll find me at my website, which is www.healthierforgood.com. You have information about my um, coaching one-on-one programs as well as my group program. Um, you can also follow me on Instagram and the socials, mostly at Megan Mello, MD. Dr. Megan Mello, thank you so much for your time and for your contributions to medicine. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. I have a favor to ask. You listened to the episode until the end, which means you either fell asleep or you really liked the episode. So please share it or like it or comment on a social media post or write us a five-star review, something. It would really help me out. And maybe what you learned from this episode can help someone else too. The views expressed in this episode are those of the interviewer and interviewee and don't represent the views of their employer or even their significant other. Even though the magic of podcasting make it sound like I'm talking directly to you, This is not a doctor-patient relationship, and this is not medical advice or financial advice or really any advice. Thank us again for listening to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.